I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And when we talk about the culture wars, issues of identity, race, ethnicity, immigration, gender, sex, sexuality, we often don't fully understand why exactly we believe the things we believe, or take the stances that we take or say the phrases that we say. So why is that? Our guest this week believes that true understanding comes from deep introspection, and she certainly has the experience to back it up. Aisha Akambi is a fashion stylist, writer, cultural commentator, and artist based in London. She's styled some of the biggest names on the British music scene and has worked for campaigns for Nike, Reebok, and Adidas, as well as collaborating with the Tate Modern, the Design Museum, and others. Aisha, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Now, that introduction was a little deceiving because there are, in some ways, two Aishas in the public eye. There's the Aisha of fashion lookbooks and music videos who outfits celebrities and whose stylist tips you can look up on the Nike app if you'd like. This Aisha has been around for at least a decade. And then there's the second Aisha, the one I came to know around, I guess, 2018 with your video, The Problem with Wokeness. It may have been a little later, but there is an entire and large group of people in the world who know you not necessarily for anything to do with fashion, but for your views on free speech, cancel culture, and the larger issue of illiberalism on the left and sometimes even on the right. But before we discuss how you went from the fashion world to being fashionably out of step with the orthodoxy of your industry, I'd like to rewind to your childhood to give our listeners a little more context. You grew up as an only child until the age of 16 when you were reunited with your half-brother in Southampton, a city of about 250, 260,000 people. uh, For our non-British listeners, that's in Southeast England. To immigrant Nigerian Muslim parents. You said there were maybe about three black kids in your school while you were there. And as of 2016, I think the population of Southampton is still about 2% black. Mm -hmm. You also struggled with learning disabilities as a child. You had dyslexia, ADHD. You were uh, on the autistic spectrum, although that was all later diagnosed as an adult. But my question is, how did you self-conceptualize at that age? How did you see yourself, your place in the world, how you related to your parents and how you related to your classmates and British society? Mm, That's an interesting question. I don't think I've ever been asked before, so thank you. My self-conception as a young person I think I've always felt slightly removed, not necessarily sure why, but I don't think I felt as though I fit in. I looked like I fit in, in many um, areas. Actually, although I was one of the only black people in my school, that actually wasn't a problem um, because the image most people have of black people, especially young people, is one of absolute coolness because of the, the TV programs, the music. So everybody wanted to be my friend and I was always accepted into a lot of popular circles, but I always felt quite out of place in those circles. I remember one of my early thoughts as a child was considering how much I thought about things. And I wondered if everyone else seemed to overthink everything as well and being quite upset that I would never be in anyone's head to quite know if that was true or not. But I did even recognize at a young age that even considering that might be atypical. So I would say that I've always been a silent thinker, 
but often in areas where I wasn't able to voice those thoughts because I don't know, when you're around a lot of people who pride themselves on being cool, examining <laughs> the existential isn't necessarily on the agenda. Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, it's certainly not. You know, I had a similar experience when I was about 12. I remember asking my dad, you know, dad, do a lot of people have thoughts like this? And he said, not many do, <laughs> but uh, it can be a, both a blessing and a curse, but it definitely means that you're a little different and that's okay. So you saw yourself as an outsider. You saw yourself as different. People perceived you as cool, perhaps cooler than, I felt. than maybe you thought of, than you felt, than you felt of yourself. When did you, I guess, suppose come into your own or have you? When did how people saw you as the cool kid begin to kind of reflect in your own self-conception as yourself as you aged into an adult? So um, as you mentioned earlier, uh, I grew up as an only child and maybe one of the benefits or potentially one of the curses of being an only child is you do have a lot of time to think and you have a lot of time to entertain yourself or learn how to entertain yourself. Uh, and so I'd been doing that for a long time up until I was 16, which is when my half brother, Sean from Nigeria came to live with me. And so he was living with me and my mum in Southampton, maybe for about uh, three or four years before he moved to London to go to university. And we were really close. I remember growing up, I'd seen him a few times, him and an, another brother of mine who's older also had come to visit a couple of times, but I always got along with my older brother, so not Sean. And so when he was coming to live with me, I wasn't very excited about that news. We did actually really get along and we became extremely close. We looked quite alike and we were like twins. We did everything together. And he also worked in fashion. He was uh, a designer. We did have some issues, but I, I guess that's um, common between siblings. I think sometimes it, it could have been a bit of rivalry and I don't know, maybe just being a bit too similar. But in 2012, he was murdered uh, unexpectedly, of course. And that completely changed my emotional, mental landscape in every way possible. I mean, I, I can't overstate how much this was a profound shift. And I was maybe 24 at the time, but I would say it's probably from that moment. That was a very pivotal point in my life where I realized that, you know, life is short, as cliche as it is, but really feeling that and, and wanting to do something about that. What does it mean to know that life is short or that life isn't promised uh, and that anything could happen to me or anyone I care about at any minute? It made me really want to live my life intentionally. Um, and it also showed me that life is way too short to live according to other people's expectations or to not explore yourself. You know, uh, we are the only people, I guess, that we will never get to mourn. And so I think whilst we are here, I think it's a service to ourselves to examine our lives and just be curious, uh, be ever curious. Uh, and, and that's something I very much prioritize. And so for me, I would say that happened um, my brother passed in 2012, the end of 2012, December, but 2013, 14, I think were the really pivotal years for me in terms of my own self-development and, and starting to come into myself. You've said that fashion provided a lens through which you began to see and understand the world. And so a similar question has been intriguing you, I, I imagine as of late, perhaps even the last eight to 10 years since your brother's passing, why do all of us do what we do? Why do we listen to what we listen to? Why do we vote in the ways that we do? What informs those beliefs? And how do we think about race and ourselves 
and identities. And that's actually a quote from you. Mm-hmm. And just as you've done now, you've linked that that kind of introspection in a way to the tragic passing of your brother in 2012. It's one thing to go through an experience like that and come out the other end believing that life is short. I feel like that can be fairly common, especially when it happens to someone close to us who is quite young. Mm-hmm. But some people would say life is short and begin bungee jumping or go travel around the world to every country that they they had thought about doing, but never thought they might have the chance to, right? Mm-hmm. But what was it about that event, or I suppose perhaps the years following, that when you were reflecting on the shortness of life and the pricelessness, I suppose, of our existence, that made you then begin to think, okay, you know what, I'm going to start talking about <laughs> some potentially uncomfortable topics. I'm going to start saying some truths that perhaps uh, I've always had in me, or that I'm just now discovering, and I'm going to vocalize them, even if people in my industry and people in the larger world might, you know, think that I'm wrong to say such things. I guess death taught me how to live in the sense, I remember having the thought around the time that my brother died that, you know, if death doesn't teach us how to live, then it's in vain to some degree. And I I don't know why, but for me, there was just something in examining myself and, and the world around me. And I remember actually, this was probably a big catalyst maybe um, a few months after my brother had died, I remember I had uh, one night where it was hard for me to get to sleep. And, and for some reason, my mind decided to give me a slideshow of all of the most uncomfortable thoughts um, that I've ever had about myself. So I was answering all of a sudden some really um, deep and personal questions that I'd never considered. So things like, why do you do the job that you do? You know, why are you friends with the people that you're friends with? Who are you jealous of and why are you jealous of them? What is envy and what is that teaching you about yourself? What are your values? Why do you want to buy the things that you want to buy? I just, lots of questions about everything. And some of the answers uh, that I found were really uncomfortable and very unpleasant. And I remember that changed me. I remember a lot of the things that I found in that moment were really uncomfortable that I just, I guess, didn't want to be that person anymore. And, and I just took myself into my own hands and, and realized that we do have tremendous power over our lives. Of course, our lives are the substance and the sum of our experiences, our DNA and all kinds of things, but we do have agency. And I also wanted to really understand my brother's death. So um, how my brother died, he met someone on Facebook and they met up And I think this was meant to be like a casual meeting or something like that. And my brother was quite flashy, quite flamboyant, as a lot of young men in fashion can be. And just a lot of young people who are still trying to figure themselves out and and want to show the world who they are by what they own. Um, And that's not just a young thing. And essentially, he was killed for these things. So this person who um, killed my brother might have already known that he was quite flashy and thought he would be able to get away with it. And so that started making me think about the emphasis that we place on material as a society to the extent that some people will kill for it. And why do we want these things? What does the material say about us? Why are we doing all of this? And so I think that's why I wanted to really understand the mindset of the person who killed my brother and maybe also my brother's own mindset. And I think that was kind of what pushed me to want to understand because I knew I had a choice to some degree. I could let this situation turn me cold. 
um, as many people do, I think, and 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 just well, understandably, um, a situation like mine could happen, and you can grow very resentful of the world. And whether it's men because it was a man that killed my brother, or whether it was the place that he's from, um, he was Moroccan. I don't know. You can take anything from a situation like that and choose to let it fester and become something very dark and negative. And I didn't want to live with that. Um, I realized that if I'm still living after going through an experience like that, then you can live through most things. And so, yeah, I was just desperate to understand in order to not let that situation turn me into something I didn't want to be. It's interesting hearing you talk about how you went through a period where you were kind of questioning everything that made you, you, you know, the friends that you had, the clothes you wore, the beliefs that you had, what, what was it that made Aisha, Aisha, right? And that feels like it's almost the opposite of what happens to a lot of folks when they go through something like what you went through, right? That part you said at the end about how you could have hung on to any one of those individual immutable characteristics of the man who took your brother's life. And you often see that and I think it's understandable when someone responds to a traumatic event that happens to them, they almost, their identity almost crystallizes around whatever that thing is, as in someone from this identity group did this thing. And so now my sole mission in life is now to make people aware of the danger of the blah, 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 right? And I get it, right? I'm sympathetic to that to some degree because I've never had to go through something like that. And I can only imagine what it does to the mind and the heart. But it sounds like you went through almost a kind of ego death you questioned everything about yourself. And am I right in saying you, you kind of rebuilt yourself from the ground up? Yeah, it felt like that. It felt like, it felt like I fell through myself in many ways. And um, it was the death of me, <laughs> you know, in, any, in many ways. It was the death, but also a rebirth. And yeah, all of my previous convictions began to crumble. And it was very scary. It was terrifying, but also very thrilling. So I, I must say, so... I had that night where I was questioning everything about myself and uh, what was presented uh, was someone that I wasn't as familiar with, but someone that I needed to get to know. And that welcomed me into or thrust me into something that I can only describe as like an acid trip. I've never taken acid, but I've read a lot about acid and, you know, people who take a lot of psychedelics. And it seemed to be the exact same experience, but it lasted for about six to nine months. And it was constant and very intense and uh, very out of this world. I mean, I often don't tell many people about the story because it seems so unbelievable. And in many ways, it is very unbelievable. I too thought that I was maybe losing my mind, going crazy. I'm pretty sure that if I did see a doctor or a psychiatrist at the time, it probably would have been called psychosis, actually. And so I'm, I'm willing to, to entertain the fact that it could have been that. But I guess it's, well, for me, what I often think about is, well, what's on the other end of psychosis when you're not medicated and you don't necessarily have the worst experience of it? I think there's actually a lot to learn from those really intense psychological states. And so for a long time, I wasn't sure what was happening because it pretty much felt like I woke up and just started talking differently. All of a sudden, I had the ability to say things that I wasn't saying previously that sounded very truthful, but I didn't really know where they were coming from. And it was as scary as that. And if I'm honest, it's now, you know, seven, eight years later, and I still feel like I'm speaking from that place in many ways, I still think I'm 
running off a lot of that energy that I gained back then. And a lot of it is quite inexplicable to me. Uh, you use the word ego death. Um, it isn't the word necessarily that I would use, but yes, I understand that it is something similar to that. And I only say that I wouldn't use that word myself because, you know, I'm pretty sure parts of my ego are still informing my behavior and parts of the negative side of my ego, maybe. But yes, it was very much something like that. I'm very interested in the concept of an ego death and what that looks like. Yeah, I, I very much relate to that. I, I went through a kind of similar <laughs> period of um, perhaps psychosis is the right word from, I think, around 2013 to 2016 for a different set of reasons. But, you know, there was like therapy and medication involved, but it was basically this process of it almost felt like I was falling apart, the world that I knew was falling apart, how I viewed everything, you know, the, the stories and the frameworks that I took for granted kind of felt like they were melting away. Mm -hmm. And it can be a very traumatizing, frightening experience because it feels like you're inside of a house in the middle of an earthquake and there's nothing you can run to for shelter. But I'd like to return to fashion because not only was your brother in that industry, but you are in that industry as well and, and well-known within it. You had a conversation with Coleman Hughes where you said fashion was a natural fit for you because you were, quote, interested in why people wear the things that they wear and that this journey into the world of fashion was first inspired by how people were reacting to your own fashion sense when you were younger. In a Guardian interview, actually, you said, quote, maybe there's something about my look that was inviting or not intimidating. That's what I wanted to try out with other people to see how much of it is actually about skin color or some other form of ism and how much of it is about people needing signifiers that make them feel comfortable, end quote. And that last bit stuck to me because I wanted to find out who those people who needed signifiers were. So can you expand on that? The people needing signifiers that make them feel comfortable? Are we talking about the people wearing the clothing and attempting to signify things about themselves to others in order to feel comfortable with themselves? Or are we talking about the people observing that are looking for signifiers of commonality and looking for comfort in the familiar? Well, I guess I think it probably works both ways. So when I was talking about why I got into fashion. So yes, I did recognize um, through dressing, maybe quite quirky. I was fairly eccentric, a lot more so when I was younger. It always made people take an interest in me that I wouldn't have thought would take an interest in me. Not necessarily because of my color, but I look quite young even now, you know? And so these were often a lot of older people who I would have thought would have just maybe looked at me and thought we didn't have much in common, but they were always very interested in getting to talk to me. And I found that very interesting. And so that is the thing that I wanted to see if it could be packaged and given to other people. Because at the time, British black music, if you like, this was around 2010, it didn't have much of a life force beyond the UK. And I wondered if it had a different presentation, a different look, if it would be received differently. And so, yes, I would say in response to your question, I do think human beings take signifiers um, from people's look and, and we, we make meaning from them. But I often think, you know, the ways that we present ourselves beyond color, you know, definitely play more of a part, I'd say, sometimes in the way that we're treated by people than just our ethnicity or the way that we speak alone. I think there's much more going on in presentation 
that people account for and can use to judge you that we don't always think about. I think we often jump to the immutable characteristics because they're obvious, but I guess people don't think about their visual language and we all have a visual language. Our our clothes are always communicating something about us and we make, yeah, we make very snap judgments about those things. Let's dig into that a little bit. I've spoken in past episodes about how our identities should be more like clothing, right? That we can take them on and off or set them aside when we want, not immutable, right? It doesn't mean necessarily one thing to be black, either in Britain or the United States, or to be Asian or to be white. But that immutable characteristic shouldn't give someone the license to automatically assume a whole set of characteristics about you. I agree. I'm empathetic to some of this because. People feel these things because they've been told version of these things for decades, right? For hundreds of years even, right? We're, we're all kind of born into this ongoing story. So how do we get ourselves out of this? You know, how do we combat those who might want to reify the very kind of strictures that have been placed upon all of us? How do we get out? So is your question, how do we get out of being so um, closely sort of rooted in what it means to be black or white or a woman or gay or lesbian. Is that the question that you're asking me? Well, I guess to rephrase it, it could go both ways, right? This is part of a a larger conversation about, about identity that we can get into. There are people who view us and then how we view ourselves. And so someone walking down the street might look at you or might look at me and assume a bunch of things because how we might look, not just because how we might dress, but because of something immutable. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side of that, and I think you've spoken about this in videos like The Problem with Wokeness and some other talks that you've had, it also goes the other way. Perhaps as a reaction to how society views us, we then internalize those own immutable characteristics and we find a hardened form of pride in them, right? We then identify ourselves as that immutable characteristic, as the most important thing. And so it's this push and pull. And I'm just trying to figure out It's kind of a question I keep returning to in my mind. How do we begin to undo that? How do we begin to allow people to not just consider themselves as those things, but also try and help other people not also just consider us those things? Well, as far as other people, how far other people consider us, I'll give that a little thought. But for me, why I don't take, let's say, the ignorant thoughts someone could have about my immutable characteristics, why I don't internalize them is because to internalize them means that that ignorant person controls me. So even if I was to now all of a sudden get really prideful about my blackness, I don't know, this is something I have to kind of take everywhere with me. Everywhere I go, I have to let people know about my black politics and how much I love being black and this and that. I would say that's being controlled by other people's thoughts. You know, that person who I'm responding to has a stake in how I see myself. And that's not a power that I'm willing to outsource so easily. And so maybe I would remind people that. I would remind people that if your sort of pride in your identity is based on people's disapproval of your identity. I don't know. There's something in that to me that just isn't very free. You know, it's still quite controlling. I often think about people who are prejudiced. I often think about people like that as just being either, you know, ignorant, fearful, feeling a deep sense of insecurity. So it, because it doesn't make sense to um, take the actions of a few people and then, um, use that to kind of make a broad statement about an entire demographic. It's a very stupid thing to do. And you can only do something like that if you are deeply ignorant. And the other words that I said, 
and thinking of it in that way, as opposed to this person being evil and stuff like that, I don't know. It just takes the power away from it for me. And so that for me, I would say is how I think we can maybe start to allow our immutable characteristics to have less sway over us is by remembering that other people's interpretation, negative interpretation of us is not us essentially. Like we don't, we don't have to go out of our way to prove that, you know, that's proven in us just living good dignified lives. I don't know. Sorry. I think I went around the houses with that a little bit and that might be a little bit choppy to understand. We're not trying to solve a crossword puzzle. These are, (laughs) these are rather (laughs) complex issues. So sometimes it takes a few trips around the block to get there. But yeah, I've just tried to, you know, if anything, I'm more curious about those ideas. So even I, if I did meet someone prejudiced, you know, my instinct isn't to tell them every reason why they're wrong. My instinct is to be curious about it. My instinct is, oh, interesting. Why do you think that? Why? It's to question it, you know? I think a lot of people who hold ideas that aren't very progressive or ideas that can be hostile are too easily shut down. And I get why they're shut down. Of course, no one likes mean comments. Um, No one likes prejudice. But the thing is, these people get shut down and the hostility grows because then they grow the resentment. Oh, I'm shut down by everyone. No one wants me to speak. And it only festers and and intensifies these feelings. So no, I'm I'm, I'm curious about bad ideas. How do we focus on finding commonality with each other without losing our own identities or our own sense of identities? I mean, in many ways, I would say we define ourselves by what we are not as much as what we are. Because to be any one thing, it means you are not another thing, right? So sometimes these labels are externally imposed to create hierarchies, right? Like here in the States and <laughs> a lot of other places, black, white, et cetera. Those, those labels were put on all of us to serve one group and absolutely not serve another. But often, and I think for the vast majority of human history, those labels have been self-created and then fiercely guarded, right? You know, you've got the, I am Armenian because I'm not Iranian, right? You know, there's the Igbo and Yoruba tribes in Nigeria. An apple is an apple because it's not an orange. You know, a car is not an airplane or a horse. So to define something is also simultaneously to define what it's not. So I think the other thing that I'm trying to wrap my mind around is what are commonalities we can focus on as we try to connect with one another while realizing that sometimes it's our differences that make us exactly who we are. Yeah, no, that's a, a really good question too, because I actually do think we have a lot more in common than we do apart. And I think the more honest we become with ourselves, the more self-awareness that we have, uh, which is something I try to encourage in my message, if you like, or with most of the things that I'm putting out there, is that I don't think we're actually that different. And when we start talking to one another, when we stop assuming, when we stop assuming that a skin color means this or your own skin color means that, we can start to see this. So I think it's very important that we talk to one another, of course. I mean, I'm probably not going to say anything here that people don't routinely say. We need to speak to people that are different. You know, so many of my liberal friends don't know anyone who's conservative. You know, they only know of these people as political abstractions. They don't know that these people have some of the same values that you have, some of the same fears that you do, suffered in many of the ways that you have. When we get to know these things about people, it's often some of the things that 
we least feel comfortable voicing that unites us with other people. I think I recognize that. I think there's a lot of uncomfortable things that happen in the mind, things that make us ashamed of ourselves, embarrassing things that have happened, things we wish that we never did. And I think we all have those things. We all want to be loved, valued, uh, made to feel worthy. For me, these are really good building blocks because what you then start to see is everybody is seeking this in different ways. Uh, but the point is they're seeking the exact same thing that you are, which is comfort a lot of the time and acceptance and belonging. I think the part that's sticking in my mind, and maybe I just haven't articulated it correctly yet, is hmm, your parents were, were immigrants to the UK, so they weren't from here originally, uh, from here, I'm in America. They weren't from the, the UK. They weren't from here either. They weren't from America either. And I've seen, you know, I've, I've had close relationships with, you know, second generation Americans have been in relationships with folks whose parents are from another country. And you can observe the kind of pain, the kind of sense of loss that a parent can go through who's from another country when they see their own child become distinctly different from them, right? Now, granted, they brought their child here or they they moved there so that when they eventually did have their child, they knew what they were getting into. They wanted a better life for their child. But that doesn't mean that that loss, that feeling of cultural loss when you see your child grow up into something distinctly culturally different from you, that is a kind of pain. And so I think what I'm trying to articulate here is an immigrant to a new country is different because of the culture that they bring with them. And that culture and those traditions and the ways that they think and the stories that they've told are all valuable to them. And that makes them who they are, right? And then you have the person on the other end of the spectrum, right? The, the person in Britain or the person in America who sees their town changing, right? And they see, you know, new stores are opening up now. And then they feel a little bit almost like, oh my gosh, like the town that I knew is now different. And I'm, I'm not angry about it, but I do feel a certain sort of way because, you know, I'm hearing more foreign languages around me. And I guess what I'm trying to figure out is how do we because I think a lot of the conflicts that we're experiencing, right, around those issues are at their root, a kind of feeling of worry around a sense of potential loss, whether it's the immigrant parent worried about, quote unquote, losing their child or someone who grew up in the same town for 100 years, seeing things change and feeling a potential kind of loss as well. And how do we account for that, right? Because although we do have a lot of similarities, the differences that make us different, even if they are small, right? The little traditions, the candles we light, the trees we put up, those sorts of things, they do make us who we are. So how do we make sure that we can balance those things and respect those things in each other while also focusing on commonalities? Does that make a little more sense? Yes, it does make sense. Um, I guess I've never seen them having to be in conflict. I think I'm still working out why are they pronounced to people immediately as conflict? Like, why can't, why is it that, okay, my mother's Nigerian Yoruba culture, why does it mean that, you know, she can't maintain that and still appreciate British culture, for example, or, or American culture? I think maybe we need to recognize that these two things can exist. Yes, there are going to be differences. So there might be things, let's say, like a Pakistani Muslim family may not want to engage in with like um, maybe some of the values of like a, a traditional white American uh, Republican family. You know, there might be some differences there, but as long as 
we're not trying to stop anyone doing what's different. As long as we stop perceiving differences to be threatening, because I think that's the thing that we do first and foremost. Uh, generally, across the board, I often notice that anything that's new to us can often be perceived as a threat. And I think we just need to be more curious about those things first um, and recognize that the addition of someone else's culture doesn't have to be an imposition on ours. And maybe when these things are happening in, in, in a small town or anything like that, maybe talking to each other about our anxieties. I think we don't talk to each other about our anxieties because if we voice the anxiety about feeling a sense of cultural loss, then that's called racism. But as you noted, and I think it's a really good observation that people don't account for very much, and it's something I've been thinking about recently, the immigrant parent who is raising a child who is different from them and the loss that they could feel. I don't even know if many immigrant children think about that, you know, because it was a thought that I came across um, just the other day and, you know, really started, yeah, thinking about what that means. And so I think when we recognize that we have the same anxieties, we can work together on that. Like I said, I think whenever I look at many situations, it often to me seems like people have the same root level um, concern or issue, but it just manifests in different ways. So yeah, I think, I guess maybe one thing would be learning that, or maybe trying to understand that someone feeling a genuine loss to their culture or feeling like their culture has been compromised doesn't have to be racist. You know, it's not a racist thing. You know, the immigrant parent who raises their child in England and is disappointed that the child has now become more British than um, maybe uh, Yoruba, that's not because they think English culture is horrible and demeaning. It's just because they have pride and, and, and memories and attachments to their own culture. But again, I, I, I think that might be a messy way of, of explaining it. But the problem is, it seems that we can't be honest about a lot of genuine feelings right now, because to be truly honest and transparent is to put ourselves in the firing line because we are too trigger happy with words that connote prejudice. Yes, I think that's exactly right. I think you've honed in on it now. It goes without saying. I mean, <laughs> even now I feel the need to say this because it's 2020, but of course there is racism and sexism in many, many places of the world, oftentimes with humongously detrimental effects to the people who are victimized by them. But oftentimes it feels to me like you've just articulated that those words, they get in the way of discussing things that oftentimes might look like those things at first blush, but are instead people dealing with rather human anxieties, totally normal potential fear of loss. I didn't really truly appreciate that whole immigrant story myself until I had some very real and intimate experience in a culture that was wholly unlike my own and getting to know and talk with the parents who had moved there 20 or 30 years ago and hearing their stories and hearing how emotional they would get when they would talk about their own children and how, you know, if they had raised them in China, for instance, that they would be entirely different. And yet they didn't regret coming to the States, but there was a push and pull that I could feel, right? And I hear a similar emotional core when I hear people on the conservative side of the spectrum, either in the UK or here in the States or elsewhere. I hear the same story being told slightly differently. And when we talk about things and all the isms that you so eloquently talk about in, in your videos and interviews, I feel like we foreclose that kind of connection, that commonality that I think you rightly said we all have. And I just find it so frustrating because people are so eager to just label each other with these terrible <laughs> markers when really 
people need hugs, man. You know, like people, like the world is scary. And I, I just wish that we loved each other a little more. Oh, no, me too. But the problem is, is I think a lot of movements that seem well-meaning and they might actually um, be well-meaning in intention. Uh, the problem is, is when they play out on social media, it then becomes about wanting to be seen as a good person. And one way, one easy way to be seen as a good person is if you're always pointing out who's a bad person, then you don't even have to do anything to be a good person. You just have to consistently point out who's bad and people will assume that you are one of the good ones. And, and it seems like society at large, not just young people or students or activists, it seems so many people are engaged in this project and it's bouncing. Well, we see it failing all around us. But people, for whatever reason, I guess it's thrilling. One of the things that I've been thinking about recently, maybe it was just in the shower yesterday, actually, I was thinking maybe one of the reasons as to why civil discourse is hard to achieve is because we're not being honest about how thrilling it is to be mean to each other. And even though we don't like mean comments and people don't want to be hostile to one another, or at least we say that we don't, when you're mean to someone online or you own someone, as, as they call it, or have a really witty retort, the retweets, the attention that you get, all of these kinds of things, I think, can be very seductive, especially when you feel like you're justified in your anger. And so if we were to stop engaging in this way, then we'd have to get our thrills from something else, maybe something more meaningful, which is a lot harder to come by. And so I think in order for us to get to a place where we're truly talking to people who are different and listening and not jumping to the easy um, sort of slurs that we dish out so easily and freely, I think we first need to acknowledge that we find some of this fun. <laughs> you know, I think that's, I think there's an elephant in the room with that. I think a lot of us find it fun to be this way. But, you know, I don't know how we're going to get past this if people can't acknowledge the rush that they get from behaving in this way. And there's a lot of social reward for behaving in this way. Many a book deals have been published or signed as a result of this behavior. So I guess maybe when we culturally, societally, media-wise, stop validating this behavior, we might get somewhere. That's a tall order. <laughs> uh, I think I think you and I would have to get an army together and actually destroy every internet company. We'd have to go back to the 20th century because my concern is, and this isn't uh, an original observation on my part, but I can't remember who said it, but the reason that social media has exacerbated this to such an extent is when you say something mean or cruel or inconsiderate about someone online, you get all of the rush and reward of saying that mean thing with none of the downside of seeing their face once you've said it. Exactly. You don't see, oh, oh, wow, oh, gosh, Aisha is crying now. That's not, that's not good. But I don't see it, right? Because I can just close my laptop and go have a drink. And I'm like, oh, man, I totally, I totally owned her. And you get none of that feedback that I think human beings kind of evolved to need to not become sociopaths. Right. So that's the question, right? How do we foster a environment of togetherness, of understanding when we're not looking each other in the eye? Yeah, well, I guess maybe it's starting to see that just as much as we have the systems externally, we have systems within that also need to be interrogated, perhaps dismantled, and all of the rest of the things that we're trying to do outside. I mean, again, it's not original, but it really does start with, I think, looking within. You know, the term that we use is wokeness to kind of describe this sort of new movement or ideology that's kind of swept the West. 
But I think being woke in its original sense is, you know, is something like an awakening, is something like an enlightenment. And that kind of enlightenment is first beginning with self. And any of the positives that you get from that, you know, should echo out onto society. But I think we do it the opposite way first. I think we try to fix everything outside first. And I think we should be starting with ourselves. Um, But that's just not as, you know, you don't get a cheerleading squad for that. It doesn't come with the same sort of social rewards and capital. It's harder to do. It's a lot harder to do it. So I think that's why we're in that situation as well. You know, because I guess a lot of these conversations are happening on the internet. And so when we use the internet, which is, um, and social media, and although people often say that it's not real life, the things that happen on social media do affect real lives. And so when we are using these apps, I think we should come with an ethos of having something to share rather than something to prove. And I think so many of us are proving ourselves online. We're proving how progressive we are, how good we are, or how much we hate the conservatives or how much we hate the left or whatever it is. But I just think be thoughtful. I mean, because the internet is the one space that we have, you know, it's not completely free and unregulated, but it it, it fairly is compared to, you know, general society. And this is a snapshot of who we are. This is a snapshot of, of how we behave when we don't have all of the social etiquette forced on us. That to me quite clearly illustrates that the problem isn't coming from outside and, and all of that. It's coming from us because look at how we're behaving. And so I think developing an etiquette, you know, social media is still quite a new space. And I often like to conceptualize it like an open plan house. It's an open plan home and we have everyone that we can't stand living with us. But we have to learn how to live with our neighbors because being able to see what our neighbors think is something we've never had before. And um, But we have to recognize that comes with not liking some of the things that we're going to hear. But to be able to hear it is, is such a, a privilege, I believe. And I think it's useful. I think we have to learn to live with our neighbors by recognizing again that they're not that different to us. Yes, we have differences, but approaching everybody who has a different opinion or a different idea as evil or wrong or a bad person, I think is a really immature, paranoid way to see the world. And it's not helpful. You know, I'm only interested in what's helpful and what isn't, not necessarily what's bad and what's good. And these things that we're doing right now, which is why I'm interested in them, they just seem to be quite clearly unhelpful. And I think it still really interests me that many adults, educated people, academics, especially academics, you know, are pushing many things that just, I don't know, common sense to me just don't make, yeah, there's just no basis for any of these things. It just doesn't seem like they are productive tools. I think that's a great point. There's something that you said a little earlier in in your response about how much easier it is to look at the outside world and criticize everything that you see that's wrong with it rather than turn that in on yourself. Because as you said earlier, that kind of experience can be (laughs) intense. It can be quite traumatic. It can feel um, like a complete loss of self. And also it, it can take us to places that are uncomfortable because it forces us to confront our own prejudices. And I would say we have to get to a place where we're more forgiving of ourselves about those things. Because being born into the world is kind of like you show up at a house party, right? You know, I don't know exactly what they call house parties in England. Maybe they call them the exact same thing. <laughs> Maybe they, you're like, we actually call them the same thing. If you've ever seen like a, a, 
like a high school movie, right? You've got like the party or like the cafeteria and you've got like the protagonist and they're, they're like new to the school, right? I don't know what's going on. What, what, what clicks or what, where am I supposed to go? And you have the exposition character who's walking the person through the house part. And they're like, all right, over there, those are the cool kids. And then over there, those are the girls you don't talk to on the cheerleading squad. And that's kind of like what being born into the world is, right? None of us who are living today made the structures of the world. We didn't make the hierarchies. We didn't define what to be a man or woman or black or white or trans or cis or straight or gay. We didn't come up with any of those things. And so I feel like people can sometimes be a little too hard on themselves when they investigate their interior and they think, oh my gosh, oh my, I, I can't believe I was thinking that thing about that group or thinking that thing about that person. And so instead of confronting it, they push it away and then kind of like that pastor who you find out was actually gay the whole time, but for 10 years, they've been railing against the evils of homosexuality. <laughs> and then you find out that actually, oh, he probably had to deal with some stuff. I just wish that we allowed space for people to investigate their own potential biases while being able to forgive themselves because we're all born into this world and told by other people what to think. Yes, no, exactly that. And I think forgiveness and self-forgiveness is a, a crucial element. And I believe that some of the reason as to why the conversations have become so corrosive is because we can't forgive ourselves for who we used to be. Because let's be real, five to six, maybe 10 years ago, none of us, many of us, majority of us did not have, let's say, the wisdom that we have on trans identities today. You know, so that means many of us might have been saying things that would today be considered transphobic, or many of us have been uh, more ignorant on race than we are today, including ethnic minorities, because not every ethnic minority or even every black person by any stretch of the imagination is reading books about being black and about racism. That's not necessarily everybody's experience. And so we've all had a massive education socially in the last 10 years. And I think people are overcompensating for what they previously didn't know. And they're overcompensating because they haven't forgiven themselves for what they once didn't know. And when you forgive yourself for what you once didn't know, it's easier to forgive other people for what they don't yet know. That's why uh, forgiveness, it's not about forgiving to be, I don't know, like a monk figure or like a Gandhi. You know, we, we forgive so we can um, be free within ourselves. It's a lot less to do with the other people. It's more about the permission it gives to ourselves. So yeah, I think forgiveness is a major element, but this comes when we have such rigid notions of what it means to be a good person. And, you know, right now to be a good person is just solely in one's beliefs. It's nothing about how someone behaves. It's all about having the right beliefs, the trendy beliefs. There's no principle in it. It's just belief. And so maybe we need to get back to principles. What you've said makes me think a little bit about something you said on the Rebel Wisdom podcast. You were talking about your viral video, The Problem with Wokeness, which of course I'll put in the show notes for if anyone who's listening to this hasn't seen that video, just give it a pause and go watch it so you can catch yourself up. But you had said, quote, something I didn't fully appreciate at the time is I think right now it's very rare to see someone with my identity who is willing to say those things in public. And you were speaking about the things that you said in that video. I didn't actually know at the time 
that they were controversial. I just really thought that this was common sense. And I think it is to many people, which is why it's so maddening that we're in the position that we're in right now, end quote. And then later you said, quote, if I'm being honest and if I'm speaking from my heart and I'm glad that it resonates with people, but the idea that it should only resonate with people because I am black is something that's hard for me to digest because I think we're creating the ground to be easily manipulated if we're only going to take someone at their word because of their identity, end quote. And I've seen this kind of become a sort of trap for people. Are you familiar with like the no true Scotsman fallacy? No, do tell me. I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but basically it's this idea of, you know, there's like a, a couple of Scottish people around and, and, you know, one says, oh, no Scotsman wears his kilt with three pleats. And then someone says, well, my friend Timmy wears his kilt with three pleats. And then the other person says, well, no true Scotsman wears his kilt with three pleats, right? And so the ball is moved, right? Instead of being able to say, okay, well, I'm a member of this group, however defined, and this is how I believe, and this is what I believe and what I think is right and wrong. It's like people then can say, oh, well, you know, that's not the approved. That's not what people who look like you or are from your background should say or should think. And it's being smuggled under this pretense of progressivism, right? And I I don't like to just pick only on the left on this podcast, because I think that there's a lot of illiberalism on both sides of the aisle here in the States. And and I see it in the UK as well. But I worry about that problem that you were talking about in the Rebel Wisdom podcast, that this idea that some people on the left will say, because I think this does go both ways. Some people on the left will say, oh, you know, this person who was saying this, you know, they're not really black or they're not really Asian or, or whatnot. And then I actually kind of see this happening on the other side as well, where someone will have, you know, someone from an ethnic minority background, let's say, onto their show, which might be a little more right wing. And they'll have them on, yeah, perhaps under the pretense of talking with them about this, that or the other thing. But I can't help but feel while I'm listening to the hosts, I'm like, are they talking with this person just to talk with them? Or are they doing a version of what some people do on the left, but in the other direction? Does that make sense? Yeah. This idea of like, on the left, you'll say, well, you're not black enough. And on the right, they'll be like, well, I've got this person here. And maybe if I ask them the right questions, I'll prove my point through them. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I feel it's a bit messy. It, it, it's a bit uncomfortable. And I don't know if I have a larger question there, but I just wish that we could get past it, you know? Yeah, I think that's why everything that we've done with race, I find to be very perverse. I find to be really distasteful because it's inevitable that um, questions like what you had are going to arise. And of course, people do use it. People use it on the left. People use it on the right because we've made race so loaded. You know, a white woman isn't just a white woman now. You know, it's such a loaded term, what it means to be a black woman. These terms are not just descriptors anymore. You know, they come with these connotations. So let's say you say white woman. And for some people, that means a Karen. That means, you know, someone who doesn't care about black women. That means someone who's got this version of so-called white feminism that is exclusive of others. And you you say the term black woman and the black woman means the inevitably oppressed and someone that isn't listened to. Or there's a slogan, listen to black women. The slogan, listen to black women, suggests that all black women are saying the same thing because we are, you know, we're contradictory. We, We have conflicting ideas. You could only tell someone to listen to black women if you think they're all saying the same thing. What if this black woman's opinion contradicts the person who told you to listen to me. I don't know. I don't like it. I find it very uncomfortable and it's very distasteful and just not smart. But I don't know. I think we just have to recognize again that like, although everyone will say things like, you know, uh, race is not a monolith. Black women are not a monolith or black people or whoever. That's not the way that we behave. 
which is why I don't really like questions about what does it mean to be black? I don't know what it means to be black. I can tell you what it means to be Asia. And I wish a lot more when people spoke about their experience being black or whatever identity it is, they would say my experience as opposed to speaking for all black women. And this is the problem. Every time I see a statement like black women always, I never relate to whatever's coming ever. And so I think there's a lot of people who are speaking for everyone. And that's why race has become a political football and people are then, you know, used as props in that war. It's, it's all very insidious. It's all very insidious. I find the race conversation in particular to be a hard one because I don't think it's a conversation where you can actually be that honest. I think like many of our social issues today, you are meant to maintain a narrative. And I'm not prepared to do that if the narrative doesn't appear to me to ring true or it seems like it's got some flaws in it. It just seems like that we're in a, we're in a time of great stories. Yes, yes. And it rubs me the wrong way because it's just so clearly an ideological cudgel, right? And maybe it's just the English major in me that kind of, that just sees it for what it is. Like when it's like you were saying, like black women do this or, oh, white women, white womening yeah. or something like that, right? And I do have to say, like I am, and I, and I mean this earnestly, I am empathetic to people from minority backgrounds, people from traditionally marginalized communities. And I don't like using marginalized excessively because I feel like if you keep telling people repeatedly, either directly or indirectly, that they're marginalized, they're going to internalize it. And I don't like the implications of that. But speaking historically, there have been some communities. We haven't always as a society viewed ourselves as individuals. We have seen ourselves as members of groups. And because of that, there have been people who have been kind of at the bottom and been put there unfairly. And there have been people who, because of dint of birth, have been at the top, right? Or at least had access, more access to the top. And so I am empathetic to communities that have been told, because identity politics isn't new. It, it's kind of as almost as old as time, right? So I'm empathetic to people from communities who have been told for decades or hundreds of years, well, this, this club isn't for you, you know, because of your immutable characteristic, or, you know, you can't be leading this company because you're a woman. Those sorts of things. I am empathetic when people then want to reclaim those labels. And I imagine you are as well. When people want to reclaim those labels and make them positive. You know, I'm empathetic to the Black is Beautiful movement. I'm empathetic to, you know, hashtag Black love, that sort of thing. I am because for too long, those things were seen as wrong or somehow not mainstream or not normal, right? And so I am empathetic to it. But I can't help but think, you know, like kind of what you were saying, I can't help but think of like, you know, when I see those hashtags trending and it's like to be black is this or to be Latina or whatever is this. I just think there's some kid in suburban Denver, Colorado or something who is black, who is doing none of those things. And I think of her and I think what happens when she sees those videos. And so I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out how to navigate the tension between communities that understandably want to reclaim a positive sense of self who for too long were told nothing but negative things about themselves by society, while also calibrating for a future that is ultimately, hopefully, allowing people not to be bound to those things. Yeah, yeah, I, I guess so. I, I think, well, this is, you know, I, I often make the point that it's, it's very easy to become what we oppose. Mm, yeah. I think when we are responding to the negativity that has historically happened that has the tendency to make us very prideful and that pride can quite quickly turn into arrogance and superiority. And then all of a sudden you're reproducing the very same attitudes that have led to prejudice. 
And so, yeah, I just think people need to be mindful of that because there's, there's some racist out there who feels like what he's doing is very justified. And he feels in the very same way that an activist would probably justify their hostility towards um, whiteness in air quotes. Someone out there feels the same way. And sometimes these people are quite hard to tell apart. And that's because I think when you're working off of anger, which is something that's really celebrated these days, to be righteously angry. And yes, of course, anger has its benefits, but it's also very blinding. For me, I just work on the principle, treat people how you want to be treated. I don't believe that it makes sense for me to generalize all white people as being something negative if I wouldn't feel comfortable with the same done in reverse. It doesn't matter if it's historically happened. We're talking about today. We're talking about the contribution that we are individually making to the world that we live. And there's obviously going to be a consequence for generalizing a whole group of people, obviously. But I don't know, you know, this is where I always come back to in myself when I'm questioning these things. I always come back to the question of, you know, what do people want? Do people want freedom or revenge? And I think a lot of people are in a a vengeful state or a vengeful place. And I get it because you can look at a lot of what's happening in society right now as a grieving process. And I think there is anger, you know, when when you're losing a sense of your identity or when you realize the world isn't what you thought it was and you realize that you used to have some ideas that you might have called uh, problematic. Um, There's an anger with these sort of things. And I think right now, yeah, we're in a collective anger that's quite blinding. And I hope, you know, there's other stages of the grieving process, bargaining, acceptance, and all of these kind of things. And I hope that we get to those points. But yeah, it does seem right now, there's just too much to gain, I think, from being a liberal. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot to gain from being a liberal, which is why I try as best as I can to push something that I hope to be a more thoughtful or considered way of engaging with other people and helping us to look at ourselves without judging ourselves or without judging people for these things. You know, there's been a lot that's happened in the last few years that has kind of helped me understand. And uh, I wish that in some ways it hadn't, uh, but it helps me understand some things from history, which initially felt rather foreign. Like, why have there been blood feuds of, you know, sons killing the sons of grandfathers of the people who killed their grandfather? you know, back in the day. And it's like, wait, wait a second, wait, your great grandfather who might've murdered your other great grandfather has nothing to do with their great grandson or great granddaughter. Why is there this blood feud that is going on for a hundred years? It makes no sense. Right. Mm-hmm. I now, when I look at our modern times, I, <laughs> I wish I didn't have this insight now, but I can kind of get it right. Like you can't get back at the great grandfather who murdered your great grandfather because they're gone. The closest proxy you have for revenge is the descendant of that person. And even though that descendant wasn't even alive when that event happened, your anger is still real and raw. And so you just reach out to the closest proxy for that person who did that evil thing 50, 70, 100 years ago. Mm. And I feel like that's kind of what we're witnessing now, right? I think you kind of spoke on this yourself. It's like, Society's in this process of like a great kind of seizure, mm. you know, where people are quite upset. And now through social media, they have all these avenues to express their anger that for so long they had no avenue to express, at least without gatekeeping, right? But a lot of the people that they're directing their anger at simply weren't around 
at the time. And so it's almost like people are trying to catch up for lost time. And I'm, I'm sympathetic to that, but it's a mess. Oh, yes, 100%. That's exactly what it is. So much of you know what we perceive to be political. I think I retweeted someone who said this recently, so you might have seen it there. But it's psychological. And I completely 100% agree, which is why I'm often a lot more interested in the psychological and, and maybe loosely the philosophical. Because I think what we're dealing with here is a lot of things to do with the mind and the emotions and our own sense of esteem. That to me seems to be key in all of this. It doesn't surprise me that as so-called wokeness has risen to the mainstream, so has the conversation on mental health. I think they both uh, rely on each other to some degree, because a lot of what we are seeing is just pain. It's pain and it's, you know, it's politicized pain. But I don't necessarily know if it's policy that can address these various pains. I think that's right. I don't think policy can. People want a shortcut, I think, mm-hmm. to address that pain. But the unfortunate thing is, as we've kind of discussed here, is there is no shortcut. And almost in looking for a shortcut, either through policy or getting someone fired because she said something quote unquote problematic in an article that she wrote 10 years ago, that's delaying the healing. Yeah. Because only until we let our guards down around each other, And we're able to say the things in our minds that we're too afraid to say so that we then can move to a place where we can accept each other and love one another. Only until we get around to the business of doing that is anything fruitful going to come about. But in looking for a shortcut through policy, through firing, through cancellation, et cetera, we're only delaying what you've rightly said is the ultimate goal, which is connection. Yeah, exactly that. Um, It seems like that for me. Yeah, it seems just like that. Um, We need to find a way to do this. I mean, there are so many contradictory messages at the moment. You know, whenever a celebrity or someone well-known tragically commits suicide, you know, we see media turn into, you know, reach out, talk to this person. But truly to talk to anyone in this day and age right now, it seems where you can screenshot, uh, where people get cancelled, where you can be publicly shamed, it seems more risky to be honest, than it ever probably has done. You know, so we're demanding transparency from people, but we also require performance. And and how does anyone live in that? You know, so whenever I see people who tragically commit suicide, and what I'm trying to say is like, I get why people don't feel like they can talk to people right now. I get it. I get messages all the time. And I'm not even saying everything that I want to say often. You know, sometimes I feel like I'm still holding back a lot. And I'm still saying a lot more than many people. So if I feel that way, I don't know how other people feel. But it's a really demoralizing way to live, a really demoralizing way to live. And I think I think sometimes we get in this idea that, you know, if you've got privilege or whatever that means for people, then certain things shouldn't be afforded to you. Like maybe you should have a diminished right to speak on certain topics, or maybe your opinion is always coming from this nefarious place. I don't know. Again, I think it's just, you know, we've got to a place where we see everybody as a political abstraction. And maybe that's because we're spending too much time online, but it's not sustainable. What I see is a deepening and a worsening of every issue that we're trying to combat. Race, has become a lot more of a tense topic and not for any good reason. I don't think uh, many people leave the mainstream narratives around race and emerge with much other than guilt or a grudge. I don't often see that. I I rarely see people come from these spaces and like, you know what, I just really want to talk to people. I've I've really got a handle on this thing now. and And I really, 
I just want to connect with other people who feel differently from me and see if we can dialogue. I don't see that. And even here in the UK, there was this Guardian poll recently, or was a, a piece in the Guardian that said, I think maybe it was like 50% of Britons or 50 something percent feel that, you know, racial tension has got a lot worse. And I think it has. I think it has got a lot worse. You know, I think you can observe it around you when most people do not want to speak on the topic, when the topic is so loaded and, and fueled with accusation. Same with gender. But yet these are the topics that many people will say are the most important. And so it's a bit it's a bit confusing when we're saying that things are important, yet we don't want anyone to speak on them unless they're saying what we want them to say. Yeah, it's so religious, isn't it? It, <laughs> yeah. it was only a few hundred years ago in the UK where if you had the wrong opinion on religion, you know, on Catholicism or Christianity or what have you, you had the wrong opinion on that, life wasn't going to look good for you. The rulers were going to have a say about your errant beliefs or your errant views on what the mainstream orthodoxy was. You just see these same things being played out again today. And when people see polls like that, like the one that you cited of people feel like race relations are worse, what can happen in the mind of the woke, right? And I don't, you know, <laughs> a lot of those people are well-meaning, but what can happen in their mind is they think, oh, see, this is just white people being upset and there's a reckoning. But that is not the only thing that's happening. And I imagine, you know, you've got a diverse friend group. I imagine you're having similar conversations, but there was a colleague of mine. She is a second generation Mexican-American. Her mother is from Mexico. She works in education. And she was talking about how recently there was a group formed at her company for Latinx educators or something is the name of it, right? Mm -hmm. And she went on this like 10 minute rant on the phone with me where she was like, I don't use that term. It's butchering the language. If I tried using Latinx in Mexico, people would laugh at me. No one I know in the company, when we talk about it privately, uses this term. She's like, it's Latino or Latina. And so I'm letting her just kind of unload, right? And I ask her like, hey, you're the demographic, right? Like this is a group that has ostensibly been created for you and your Latino and Latina colleagues. You know, like again, your mother's from Mexico. So why don't you bring it up. Like, why don't you say something? You're the demographic it's supposedly for. And she said, I can't because I'm terrified of the consequences. Yeah. And so I'm thinking to myself, what is the environment that's being created in which people who are of the groups that these movements or hashtags or communities are ostensibly for, they themselves feel too terrified to buck whatever the orthodoxy of the day is. And so, I, so you see these polls, and it's not just about white people being uncomfortable. There's a lot of people in minority communities who are getting swept up in this stuff. Oh, 100%. And even the poll um, also polled ethnic minorities who also said <laughs> that you know, race relations are much worse. And this is uh, a consistent point that I've tried to make with a lot of people, is it's not a conversation that white people feel is hostile only. And many white people don't feel like this conversation is hostile. There are many white people who are down with the reckoning and who believe that everything we're doing right now is completely justifiable. But no, there is plenty of ethnic minority people who feel very threatened by this movement, very threatened by the idea that, you know, if they were to have an opinion, then they might be told by someone who looks very much like them that they are not the true Scotsman, as it were. You know, that they are not authentically black or an authentic member of the Mexican community because they have the wrong opinion, which feels to me, I would say, a lot worse than someone being racist to you. It's a lot worse because at least with racism, you know, it's just complete ignorance or stupidity and, and you get it. When it's coming from people that you share 
culture with and and through culture maybe some like shared experiences that's a lot more painful it's a lot more hurtful in my opinion because they should know better exactly exactly and they don't so even the fact that like people who would claim to be some of the most oppressed people on earth are happy to talk to other people from their community like that so long as they don't hold the right ideas that to me shows you this movement isn't really about combating discrimination what it is, it's a, it's a movement, I think, that seeks to maybe try to attain power or to remove other people's power. But it's not concerned with fighting discrimination, because if it was concerned with fighting discrimination, then it wouldn't be discriminatory to anyone. And it's a very discriminatory movement. Yes, uh, that's so true. You know, I mean, uh, <laughs> again, with the 2020 disclaimer, but you know, like I'm a white guy, right? I mean, my mom's side of the family is Armenian, but you know, I'm a pretty light skinned dude. And so I never really experienced, you know, any kind of racial or ethnic bullying as a kid at all, aside from the occasional question of like, where is Armenia on a map? You know, I, I actually prefer that to the Kardashian representation I have today, but that's neither here nor there. But what I do have a lot of experience with as a child is I was just bullied a lot. I was bullied a lot because of things that were out of my control, you know, or things that I liked, you know, I was a sensitive kid, emotions close to the surface. I liked reading and writing. I had kind of, a, <laughs> I had kind of a, an epic curly uh, head of hair and bright red glasses and braces. And, and so I was um, an easy target, right? And so I was bullied a lot. And I think you said it well, it's one thing when it comes from people on the outside, right? The people who bullied me, who didn't know who I was, who weren't my friends, right? But I'm trying to picture a scenario in which as a 12, 13, 14 year old, you know, I'm getting bullied in elementary school or middle school. And then I go to my friends, the people who love and care about me, the people I seek solace with from the bullying I was experiencing at school. And I'm trying to picture a scenario in which I go to them and they also bully me. I mean, the ideal scenario is that no one bullies anyone, but it's so much more disingenuous when the quote unquote community of acceptance is the one that says that they're speaking for you. And bullies you. Because that is what it is. At the end of the day, if, if you're telling someone that they're not black the right way, or Asian the right way, or gay the right way, or trans the right way, or anything, right? Take any one of these, these identities. And you're hearing from people who, on one hand, say that they're advocating for you. Take to the streets, right? And then you have some opinion that goes against whatever they think. And then they try to exile you from that group. I mean, I don't really have a question here, but it just, it's so upsetting, Aisha, you know, like it just, it's so upsetting because people have pain and they need love and we're not giving it to them. Mm, yeah, no, I completely agree with you. And it, it's funny actually that you mentioned, uh, that will give that scenario because when I actually was in school, so like I said, I went to a school that was predominantly white. So let's say in our school, maybe 900 kids, I don't know, it was a really big school and maybe three black people. And the only people who are racist to me, the only person who I got racial discrimination from was the other black girl. <laughs> you know, it was the only person. And the reason why she did that is because she was Caribbean. I'm uh, African, heritage-wise Nigerian. And uh, in school in the UK, probably still happens in many uh, ethnic minority communities, um, people from different parts of the world, they sort of compete in a way. And so back when I was in school, being Caribbean was very cool. And being African wasn't cool because Africans are so-called poor because of all the representation that people tend to see and the adverts from like charities. People just had really basic ideas of what they thought Africa was and they just thought it was a really awful poor place. And so this other black girl in the school with me, she wanted to make sure everyone else knew that she wasn't the type of black person that I was. You know, she was from the place 
where there was Bob Marley and jerk chicken and, and tropical beaches and things like that. Places that people go on holiday, white people go to. So it's familiar and not this alien thing like Africa was in maybe her opinion. And she was the person that bullied me. And I wouldn't say that was traumatic or harrowing. It's just interesting. And there are a lot of experiences like this. And, and it's one thing that happened in school. So I don't really put much weight on it or any weight on it. But when we're still doing that as adults to people whilst claiming to be fighting for them, I don't know why people who are behaving this way don't think the rest of us have eyes. You know, we can see. Many of us can see what is happening here. And many of the people you don't like can see what is happening here. And this is only derailing what should be, um, you know, genuine movements uh, where there, you know, there are issues to be addressed. You know, we can argue about to what extent racism exists or to what extent it's a barrier to black progress. But, you know, there are still isms that exist and it'd be nice if we could reduce them. And many of those isms are completely sort of like not laughable, but, you know, these things are almost not taken as seriously anymore. Because, you know, people have overused and abused these terms and claim to be against discrimination, but then are some of the most openly discriminatory people you could ever meet. So, yeah, again, I just think, if anything, a lot of the current focus that we have on all of these isms has just made things worse every last place. Um, I can't see many areas, to me at least, that looks like a lot of genuine progress is being made. It just seems like we have a lot more tribalism and a lot more us and them. And I don't remember that so palpably before. My only hope when looking at the current landscape is that enough people within these communities, inside and out of them, begin to recognize the illiberalism of them and kind of opt out. If enough people start being quote unquote exiled from communities that they're immutably a part of, hopefully a movement can build in which the people who have been told that they're the wrong way to be this or the wrong way to be that can begin to speak up and say that this isn't right. And hopefully the idea is that if the fire can burn intensely enough, that we can hopefully be rid of this illiberalism. So the final question that I'll put to you, that I put to everyone who comes on the show, and we've talked a lot about this topic today, actually, so it's rather relevant. We're limited as individuals in a lot of ways. You know, we're limited in our time, in our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy. Because even the most well-intentioned, caring person, right? They can't be thinking of every person, every group of people all the time. You get busy. You've got your job, you've got your friends, you have podcast appearances and whatnot. We all have things we have to do. So it's impossible to be thinking about everyone else and caring about everyone else all the time. So my question to you is, is there someone or a group of people in your life or in the world at large right now that you would just like to take a moment and offer empathy to? Oh, this is probably a really random one, but I guess it's something that's quite close to my heart. So in Nigeria, there are a lot of young people from as young as, you know, seven sometimes who work as what are called houseboys and house girls. Essentially, these are servants and they can be treated in all kinds of awful ways. And that situation, and it's a very common practice all over Nigeria to have, sorry, they're not always young. Sometimes they're of, of age. But often they're not too. And, you know, they get treated terribly. It's almost like a form of slavery. And so um, I would like to offer empathy to anybody in that situation. People in that situation are individuals that I think about a lot for some reason. So, yeah, I think today I'm going to extend my empathy over to anyone in a situation like that. 
Aisha, thank you again for taking the time out of your day-to-day to come on and speak with me about these issues and speaking out in the way that you are and articulating what I think is on a lot of people's minds in a rather beautiful way. Thank you. Thank you.